Do you want to be a leader who gets noticed, gets things done, and gets real results? Then you need influence and authority. Join host Jennifer McClure to learn how to build authority, expand your influence, and increase your impact. This is the Impact Makers Podcast with Jennifer McClure. Hey there, Impact Makers. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Impact Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer McClure, and today I'm sharing a conversation with my friend, Adriana Baer. Adriana is a public speaking coach for leaders and rising leaders, and she brings her skills and experience as an acting coach and theater director to this work. Adriana began her career as a trained actor, where she studied performance, improvisation, and public speaking. She then turned to directing and eventually became the executive artistic director, aka the boss, of a theater company but she knew that she could have an even bigger impact on her community and the world by helping other people to lead their organizations and industries, to get elected to public office, or to get promoted into decision-making roles. So she decided to utilize her practical and actionable set of tools to become a public speaking coach. Adriana's passion and expertise is the art of communication, and her mission is to guide clients through the process of speaking courageously with confidence and clarity in order to inspire their communities, increase their impact, and grow their careers. And who doesn't want more of that? I know I do. Whether you're a seasoned or aspiring public speaker or someone who speaks in boardrooms, conference rooms, or at the local PTA meeting, I think you'll get some great tips and information from Adriana in our conversation today. Welcome to the Impact Makers podcast, Adriana Bear. I'm looking forward to learning more about you today. So why don't you tell us who you are and what you're all about? Thanks, Jennifer. So hi, everybody. Um, my name is Adriana Bear. I am a public speaking coach for leaders and rising leaders. And what's unique about me, I think, in this world is that I actually have over 20 years as a professional theater director. That's my background. So I come to public speaking, coaching, and leadership from the angle of the performing arts and working with hundreds, if not thousands of actors and artists over the years to communicate to an audience. And so with that perspective, I bring that into my coaching with leaders and rising leaders about how to communicate with their audience. And that's my main life. We have so we have so many questions following your introduction there. Um, and we love a good public speaking coach and hoping to get some free coaching today for me and everyone else. So it's the only reason to have a podcast is to get free coaching. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know if you need my coaching. You're great at public speaking. <laughs> well, everyone can get better, but thank you for that. So you mentioned, you know, yesterday I did a, a, a workshop for some bankers on personal branding. And one of the thing I, things I talk about in that workshop is that different is better than better. And, you know, how are are you unique in terms of your personal brand and what sets you apart? So right away, you're differentiating yourself from a lot of other public speaking coaches with your background in theater, because many of them maybe come from corporate or they're, you know, been speakers for a while, or somehow they've kind of landed, maybe they're performers or actors. I know Michael Pork comes at it from a performance background. So tell me what, Number one, how did you get interested in public speaking coaching with that kind of background? And how does it impact the coaching that you do with your clients? Yeah, awesome. So <laughs> what I think is there's two ways that I entered into this. The first is that when I was quite young, I made a decision that I wanted to be an artistic director of a theater. So essentially to be the boss of a theater company. And 
I kind of got on that pathway when I was in high school. I just, I was really clear. I was in student government in high school. I did a lot of standing up in front of my class and we didn't have a debate club at my tiny private school, but if we had, I would have been on it. You know, I was that, that kind of person interested in leadership and performing. And so the logical place where those two things met, where the artist side of me and the leadership side of me met was in artistic directing. So I got on a path. Is there such a thing as a path these days? I don't know, but I got on what I thought was the path and I went straight through. I was the associate artistic director of a theater. Then I went to graduate school. I got my MFA in theater directing. Then I landed a job as an artistic director, which brought me from New York out to Portland, Oregon. And I was really young. I was 29 when I got that job. And I realized right away that a huge part of that job was standing up in front of people and asking for money, which is not actually very fun (laughs) for most people. Now, I have some friends and colleagues who run arts organizations or nonprofits who actually really love asking for money, but that's maybe one in every 50 people. And I was not one of those people. But right away, it, within six months of me taking over this company, I was just getting the ro- learning the ropes and getting my feet under me. The people who owned the building where our theater was located decided to turn the whole building into a manufacturing facility. And that meant that the theaters were getting kicked out. So we needed to raise a lot of money very quickly. And I had just started, so I didn't have a lot of relationships in the community yet to fall back on. And so what I decided to do was we had a, we had a show running that I had actually directed for four weeks. And so there were five performances a week for four weeks. And I decided that every single day I was going to get up in front of that audience and ask for money. I was so terrified. Now I had been an actor. I had been an actor all through college. You know, I didn't have any problem getting up and pretending to be somebody else. But when I had to get up as myself and be vulnerable and say, this is the situation we're in and tell my own personal story, I was really nervous about it. And I actually ended up working with a business coach who helped me figure out how to do that. And then I did it and it worked. And one of the reasons why I think it worked is that I then decided to approach it like I would have any character in any production and any thing, right? So I took my theater background and I said, okay, who is my audience? Who am I speaking to? What do I want them to do? All these things that we actually say in acting land, we say, okay, who are you talking to? What is your goal? What is your motivation? All these words, they all work when you're talking to real actual humans in the world who are not, you know, on stage with you. And so that was a real eye opener to me that all of these skills I had that I thought were very siloed into, you know, being on stage actually had a lot of relevance in the world of raising money for nonprofits, which felt very important to me. And then, but I just kept on doing my, my, my job and my life and, and I wasn't coaching outside of that. But then I had some people who started to come to me who had seen shows that I had directed and asking me if I could coach them. And so I was like, I don't know anything about being a banker or running an insurance company, but uh, sure. 
And so I started doing that. And then when I resigned from my artistic directing job um, and went back to freelancing as a director primarily, I started coaching more and more these folks who were not in the arts. And I found it really fulfilling. So that's where my main focus is now. Interesting. So when you work with your clients, are you working with them on the craft of of the performance of, the, you know, because again, Michael Port with Heroic Public Speaking, I you know, read his books and listened to his podcast. He talks about it, that it's a performance. And so he does a lot of the stage craft, you know, where you stand and how you tell your stories, et cetera, which, which is interesting because I don't come from that kind of background. Do you work with your clients primarily on that kind of stage craft on about how to deliver the speech and make the message impactful? Or do you also work with them on the content of their talk? I do both, but I, I would say that I approach it maybe a little bit differently than you describe he does. I think I think that that external stuff is really important and that's where people get hung up a lot. They think, I don't know where to, like if they're doing a a presentation on Zoom, for example. I don't know where to look. I don't know how to read my notes and speak at the same time. Or if I'm in a pre- if I'm in a donor's house or I'm in a, a big hall, where do I stand? How do I how do I light myself? All of that stuff is really important. For me, I notice that a lot of that is the is focusing on the external first. And What I notice is that I can generally tackle a lot of that external stuff within about maybe 10% of our time together, because it really is hands-on concrete skills that you can learn. Put my feet here, look this way, stand this way. The bigger challenge is the internal stuff, I find. So it's the mental blocks. It's the feeling judgment. It's the when I, before I go out on stage, I realize that I am not breathing. (laughs) Or when I get nervous, my voice goes up three octaves. You know, there's all these things that are happening partly because we haven't practiced certain skills, but for my observation, mostly it has to do with a mental block or an emotional block or something. Now I'm not a therapist, right? So I'm not getting into all of that necessarily, but I will create space for people to really try to answer what it is that's going on there. And what I find is so interesting is, you know, there's kind of three areas of, of these presentations, right? And I'm, I know you have experience in all of this. So one is the, the actual stuff I'm saying, right? My data, my facts, my slides, my message, right? The second is me. How am I function? How am I standing in this space? How am I speaking? What, uh, how am I using my voice? (laughs) That kind of thing. And then the third is the audience, right? Who is my target audience? What are the words I need to say to them? How are they responding to me in this moment? If I can't hear them, like I'm on a podcast or Zoom and everyone's muted, what other clues can I get about how they're reacting to what I'm saying? And what I notice is usually somebody is very strong in one of those places, And then the other two need to kind of come up and meet them. But the piece that I think a lot of people, the the thing I think a lot of people miss is that who am I talking to piece? Who is my audience? And what the shift can happen when people focus more on who they're talking to than on themselves is that a lot of times those nerves 
those, I don't know where to look. I don't know what to do with my hands. That stuff goes away because they're being, they're really focusing on their objective and on their goal, which is actually to move people. So what are some tips or, or steps without giving away your proprietary process <laughs> that you recommend for speakers? I mean, typically, especially, you know, higher level speakers, or if you're getting paid a lot of money to speak at an event, you have one or more pre-event calls where you are asking questions like who will be in the audience? What are your goals for them? What are they struggling with? To try to understand how you can deliver a message that resonates directly with the audience. Do you have other tips for how people can, especially if they don't have those prep calls, determine who their audience is and what they need and how they can help them with that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, if you really have no idea who's there, (laughs) then that's tricky, right? But, you know, we can we can generally suss out at least a core demographic of folks that we're speaking to. One of the things, and this is just, this is related to what I just said, so it's not a totally new idea, but one of the things that I find that can be really helpful is creating a, creating an audience character. Now, sometimes it's somebody you actually know. For example, I did a coaching at... a a leadership conference for this company. And I actually knew somebody in the audience. So I decided she was my audience for this talk. She happened to be the audience, right? She was a rising leader in this company. It was perfect. I happened to know her. Great. I decided to deliver that message directly to her. That really clarified my words. But when I don't have that person, I actually know, sometimes I will create the character of somebody who is the person I need to be talking to, or I will imagine a person is with me in that room that I know well, how I know how they react. I know how they think. And this actually comes from, I spent a lot of years coaching actors for auditions. And when actors audition for things, they generally audition with a monologue where they're speaking to a character that is in the play, but is not actually in the room with them when they're doing that audition. And I kept not understanding why my clients were being terrible in their auditions. And I was like, what is happening here? And then I finally realized that the key question that I needed to ask them was, who are you talking to? And the minute they they figured that out, suddenly their pieces got better because they were actually clearly focused on communicating with with a person for a specific reason with specific language. And so that directionality, I think is really, is really, really crucial and important. The other thing is funny enough as a theater director who primarily, when I do work in the theater, I work with scripted material. I actually don't love scripts for folks. And so if I can help my clients get up off the page and focus on three keywords per section or five key ideas for their hour max? And how do we kind of create some structure or a map or a framework? With I always believe that within structure, there's an incredible amount of freedom, but if you don't have that structure, you're lost. So if we can figure out what your markers are, then generally speaking, if you know who your audience is and you know your next point you're trying to make, you're able to get through that language in a way that feels more you 
right? And it feels more natural in the room. And it's okay if somebody laughs in the middle of something you didn't expect them to laugh or like suddenly somebody drops their coffee and there's a thing. If you're on a script and you're so stuck on that, it's really hard to handle those moments. But if you give yourself a little bit of flexibility, then it's okay if like the catering door slams in the middle of your talk, you know, you can react to it like a person and then people feel like you're really there. I love that. Like you said, there is incredible freedom within structure and frameworks and with Disrupt HR, you know, the talks are five minutes, 20 slides that automatically advance every 15 seconds. That's Um, tricky. (laughs) Which we, we stole from Ignite. But, you know, we've been doing this for 10 years now. There's over 6,400 talks out there online, and I've seen many of them both in person and and on video, and also see a lot of the comments from people who, you know, have spoken at Disrupt HR for the first time. And that is what is often mentioned that, you know, at first it was very daunting to think that I had to, you know, squeeze all my ideas into this and that the slides are going to be moving so quickly. But the ones that do it well or do exactly what you say. And my advice to people is always don't script your talk. That's my advice. Now, some people still do. And my friend Vadim Lieberman has given a bunch of disruptive HR talks. He totally scripts his talks. He practices and rehears. And he's like an actor. He hits every mark and he's amazing. But I see too many people that script their talks. And then, as you said, somebody laughs or they get behind the time of the slides. Doing it live is much different than practicing in your, your kitchen. And when they get behind the times of the slides, it throws them off. And I did that the very first Disrupt HR talk, you know, in 2013, the day of, because I don't typically structure script my talks. I do have points that I cover based off my slides. I know my stories, you know, most of my talks I've given many times. So I was kind of approaching Disrupt HR the same way. I think I sent my slides in the day before they were all, my talk was going to be on awesomeness. Uh, and so I pulled, yeah, a bunch I, love of, it. I, I pulled a bunch of memes <laughs> off Pinterest for awesomeness, which that was the smart thing I did. My slides were all pictures of memes about awesomeness. So no words or bullet points or anything I had to refer to. But the day of, I'm like looking at that slide. I'm like, okay, so what am I going to say? And I started talking and I realized you can only say in 15 seconds, like it's like six sentences or less. And so I sat down at the kitchen table and I actually scripted out a talk. And then I spent like two hours before I left for the event rehearsing for the first time in my life, trying to get a script. And you can watch that. I can watch that talk. And I see that even though it was funny and people were laughing and I did manage to get through it and go with the flow, I feel very robotic because I'm trying to say my script. You know, you are awesome. (laughs) And so, you know, since then, and I give that advice to disrupt HR speakers, I'm like, yeah, pictures on your slides are great. You know, images, something that if it changes quicker than you thought it was, you're not going to be thrown off and be like, okay, well, we can't talk about that anymore. Um, You know, so I have learned, as you said, to just say, here's the points I want to make. I'm going to start talking at five minutes. You know, when the bell starts, I'm going to start talking. I'm going to hit my five points and I'm going to get to the end. And that's the advice I give to people. Now with a keynote or something like that, it's a little bit different animal. The the frameworks, you want to have your stories and everything lined up in advance. But it's, I think Disrupt HR has taught a lot of speakers and, and formats like that, how hard and easy it is to give a good talk when you actually let the structure help you. Yeah. Yes. I love that. I love that. And that what I hear you saying too, is you really want to suit your presentation, suit the method, suit the, even the way that you rehearse and prepare to the type of event you're going into, 
right? Not every single thing is going to be the same. Not everything is a TED talk not, and not everything is a keynote and not everything is five minutes, right? So you really have to be responsive, I think, to what's actually going on for, for you. Yeah. And are you a slides or no slides kind of girl? Which do Me? you prefer? Um, yeah, no, I, I go back and forth. I mean, the reality is, is that people in the audience learn in different ways, right? So I do feel like it's my job to create access for lots of different types of learners. Some people are visual learners and that's, what's going to stick with them. Some people respond to music and that's how they, they, you know, get engaged. So I think the right kind of slides are great, but there, boy, are there a lot of wrong kind of slides. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's one. That's a great way to say it. There are a lot of wrong kind of slides. <laughs> I was just coaching somebody who's in healthcare and actually it was great. They, she did this presentation. They got a hundred thousand dollar grant. It was so exciting, but her slides, she, she started off and she goes, and as you can see in the up right hand corner of this slide, the data suggests, blah, 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 and then read the data. And I was like, do you have to? And she goes, unfortunately, like this is what's being required by, because it was so much, you know, they had science and the data and the, you know, the lawyers said you better present it in this exact way. But I was like, no one on a Zoom screen is going to see the upper right-hand corner of this slide and read alongside you. So, you know, but again, that was her, that was her situation. She had to fit in this framework. So I said, okay, so instead of that, can we just say, as you can see here, and then summarize, like, what can we do <laughs> to get a little bit more energy in this conversation? Because really, the thing is, people... People give money to people. People, they don't give money to data points or even ideas on a page. They give money to, to that's why storytelling is so important. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought so. up storytelling, which is kind of the darling of the last few years. I mean, storytelling obviously has been around for a long time, but bringing storytelling into your marketing and Kendra Hall, who's one of my favorite speakers, is great about how you can use storytelling to move people. How do you work with your clients in regards to their stories? Do you, you know, especially with, you know, like you said, healthcare executive, I imagine that person didn't come in the first time with really great stories to illustrate all the points they had to make in that presentation. How do you work with your clients on the storytelling piece? Well, I'll tell you what, to tell your own personal story, if you're really, truly doing it, it's, it can be really hard. We're asking you to be vulnerable and open and honest and share with whomever happens to be there that day, something very truthful. And I do think that story, one, that's actually where I do go into a little bit more of the structure. And you were asking if I help people with their scripts as well. And I do, I actually used to work in script development for playwrights. So I, I love dramatic structure on the page. How do we build toward a key moment. And I use, I mean, I get really nerdy. I go back to Aristotle and I say, look, you have, yeah, I know it's, it's real nerdy, but let me, and so I have visuals and essentially what it says is like a story contains five major sections 
and let's try to craft something into this framework. So where are you at the beginning? We call that your stasis, where I used to be. Then something happens that kicks off a journey. You go on some kind of journey. Then there's a turning point. Then you go on some more journey and now you're in your new place, right? Pretty much every story that's worth its salt falls somewhere into that structure. So I really try to break it down. And this can also help then you're not necessarily attached to that script, right? I'm going to tell you my story. Oh, right. What's my journey? That's how I'm going to tell the story. But I was doing some research on storytelling because I had a hunch about something. And I loved that my hunch was affirmed by science. I love it when that happens, when my art hunch is affirmed by science. So I was really feeling like the reason why we love story is that we end up having an empathetic connection with the storyteller, right? As the audience. And again, that's sort of what theater is all about, right? Theater came into existence to tell story, to affect a community, right? That's the vibe. The vibe is like, I'm a story is told. I feel connected to the storyteller, but why does that happen? And it turns out that when you have a story and here's the key, it has to have a dramatic arc. It has to have an event and a turning point. It can't just be plot. It can't just be, I walked to the park. That's not actually sufficient. So what happens is when you tell a story with a dramatic arc, the listener has an oxytocin release and oxytocin is the chemical messenger in our bodies that creates the feeling of connection. And so Dr. Paul Zacks did with his research scientists did this whole study on oxytocin release, empathetic connection and story and the dramatic arc. So there's a really good reason why we want to use story to connect with people because it actually is like, it's a really quick way in to hack our biochemistry to actually make us feel more present with you in the room. And Kendra Hall does this beautifully. So sometimes when we go back to this vulnerable thing it's, and people are feeling, do I really have to tell the story of whatever? Even what I ate this morning for breakfast can be nerve wracking for people who are used to talking about data points. You know, It's like, cool, let's just go to structure. Let's go back to that structure equals freedom. And sometimes we get to tell stories and they don't have to be about us. So I also am somebody, I want everybody to be honest and tell the truth, but I come from a theater and dramatic literature background. It's okay with me if we tell this story with, what if it's, if it's about you and you don't want to make it about you, you can invent a character and tell the story about the character. There are ways to evoke this same feeling in our audience without having to bear our guts. And I think that's the social media downfall. Like the thing that's caused us a lot of trouble is this feeling that now we have to let everybody into everything about us. And that's not necessarily true. So, so we've got to create a space where you can feel safe to, to speak in order to speak. Right. I have um, one of my most popular keynotes for several years was around the future of HR. And one of the reasons why it was very popular was because there were great stories for each of the points that I wanted to illustrate. And one of the stories was about one of my first clients. And so, as you said, I, I changed the person's name. I certainly didn't mention the client, but I described the scenario and told the story of what happened. And 
I will never forget, you know, a couple of times I would do this talk, you know, in the Cincinnati area or where I knew people that um, would know the company and maybe even the person were there. And so I was a couple of times very nervous about that. And after one of those meetings, someone come up and said, is that XYZ company and you're talking about? It? I was like, what? <laughs> and I, I don't know. What do you, why would you say that? <laughs> so sometimes, you know, you do have to think about stories. And again, it wasn't a harmful story, but just I would never there was a lesson as to what went wrong and, and what happened. So I wouldn't want to embarrass someone that way. So you do have to think about those things. What is something that, you know, we all see speakers, uh, whether on YouTube or if you do go to conferences, events, you've probably seen a Brene Brown, a Simon Sinek, um, you know, these uh, Mel Robbins, I can, you know, I could probably name many more. What is something that most speakers, even the popular ones, are doing wrong? Oh, wow. That's such a good question. <sighs> you mean so, you're not judging people when they get up there? I mean, I don't judge Queen Brene. I mean, may, may God smite me down if I judge Queen Brene. No, I'm kidding. So actually, I'll tell a funny story. I was recording a new introduction to our podcast uh, that I do with my with my co-host. She is a, a nurse practitioner, an integrative health coach, and I am me. And so we were recording this intro and we listened back to it and she sounded like a human and I sounded like an NPR personality. Well, there's not anything wrong with that. No, there's not anything wrong. So, so actually I, I, what it really was, it wasn't even that I call it my NPR voice, but when I listened back, I thought, you know, that person who announces the people who are nominated for Academy Awards or for movies, and they'll be like, broke back mountain, <laughs> Meryl Streep. Like <laughs> I suddenly, I was like, why do I sound like the announcer at the Oscars or, you know, my, like, I am delivering the news. And so I will say, I think, and I don't think Mel Robbins does this at all, but I do think that there is, there is a, I'm performing now voice and there's my real voice. And obviously as somebody who Part of, you know, you're asking what are some of the tools and tips I use? I use vocal exercises. I use breathing warmups. I use physical warmups. I believe that we need to be embodied in order to do this work. So get up off your chair, stand, get out. You know, I always, I do a lot of coaching on Zoom and I'm like, you got to find a room that you can close the door, be loud in and get away from your computer. Cause I'm going to make you stand up. Right. So there's a lot of like physical vocal. It's a physical practice being up in front of people, you know that, right? You can't just hide behind the podium. You've got to, I mean, you can, but it won't, it won't go very well. <laughs> nobody, nobody will like what you have to say. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, but that, but, you know, so we want to warm up our voices, but we want to warm up our voices. We don't want to be mimicking some sound that sounds professional or sounds like my problematic phrase right now and this might be a slight tangent is executive presence. I'm having, having a hard time with the phrase executive presence these days. Um, I think it's sort of being thrown around without maybe being thought about what that really means. What are we really talking about? So if we're not careful, we'll mimic accidentally subconsciously mimic somebody we 
think of as a serious speaker who knows their stuff. So you might have people who are mimicking Brene Brown or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama or these great orators who know how to command a room, but it's not their authentic voice. And that really, the audience may not know that what's off, but they'll feel that we're not quite connecting with you. And I've seen extremely uh, popular people who, this one person in particular, I will not mention their name. They have millions of followers on social media. They have an incredibly successful coaching company. They have a podcast and I saw them live on stage and I was like, and who are you? I didn't recognize this person for who they are when they're behind a screen and who they were on stage. And I couldn't figure out, I was like, which one is the real you? I don't, you know, so we want to make sure that we're showing people the unified thing, right? Even when that means we're messing up our words or saying like, and um, and are a little floppy sometimes, you know, <laughs> this is how people want to relate. They want to relate to a real human being. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of, you know, I talked earlier about what differentiates you is better than best. Um, and the feedback that I get, you know, on anonymous feedback forms and both in person, a lot of times is that I am relatable because my talks are conversational. And I am basically having a conversation with you about the topic. Now, not everybody likes that, but what what is funny is to get a transcription of my talks, which you know I might leave the stage going killed it, nailed it. You know, <laughs> people came up and said it was the most amazing thing they ever heard. I should be on stage right before Brene Brown opening for her, and then I get the transcripts of the talk, and I'm like, who said all those words? <laughs> <laughs> wow, that did not, none of that connects and makes sense, but it's so much different. I think when we have conversations with other humans, we're not looking necessarily at the ums and the ahs and the things they do, unless it's overused, <laughs> because that's how we talk to people, right? So I ask you the the negative side of the question. What are the speakers that are out there getting paid big bucks? What are they doing wrong? What is something that great speakers do, you know? pick some or all of them or conglomeration of them, but what are you trying to get your your clients to achieve in their speaking journey? I mean, honestly, I think the speakers that are the best speakers are people who love doing what they're doing. I honestly don't care what they're talking about. I mean, I would listen to, do you remember, speaking of NPR, do you remember Car Talk, with Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers? We all loved them, right? <laughs> Why did we listen to those two guys talk about fixing cars every Sunday morning, my entire childhood growing up? My parents were not car people. I, I don't, I drive a Subaru, you know, like everyone else in the Pacific Northwest. I don't care about cars, but those two were so themselves and they loved what they were doing. They just loved every minute of it. And you just wanted to hang out with them because they had such a wonderful vibe and were so just, they were just so happy to be there, you know? And I I don't think that we have to be falsely happy. Look, the world's a mess these days, right? Like we want to be talking about serious stuff. That's fine. But the best kind of speakers are the speakers who are just so happy to be connecting with that audience that day. And that's, for people for whom that sounds like an impossibility, 
because of all the blocks to public speaking and how scary it can be. Like, I, I really do believe that anybody who wants to get there can get there. They've just got to, you know, it takes some work, but it's definitely possible. And, and you can tell with like some of the speakers that you mentioned, they love, they love doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I think that's something when people, you know, they'll often ask me, how do you do what you do? I could never be a a public speaker. And I'm like, you could, is it what, you know, I don't get nervous. Thankfully, I, I don't have that gene. I'm grateful for that. So, and I've always been standing up in front of people talking and I didn't realize it was the quote public speaking and at the time, but I said, you know, do you have conversations with your spouse or your kids? Do you talk to your team? Do you, you know, stand up and kind of uh, walk through how you did something? I said, oh, that's really kind of public speaking. And I think there is a lot of talk out there today where it doesn't necessarily resonate with me, but I get what they're getting at. They talk about stages, you know, that stages are not just being up on a stage, you know, giving a talk that a stage could be a podcast interview. A stage could be, you know, a conversation with a person to, you know, get them to donate to your nonprofit. So thinking about all the stages that you're actually on in life where you are in effect giving a talk or a speech or a presentation where you don't even realize it, but then if someone said, okay, now I want you to get up on a stage and do that in front of 300 people and you go, oh my gosh, I can't. <laughs> now there certainly is an aspect of being nervous and some people, you know, if you, I always say I can talk to 10,000 people on a moment's notice about a topic that I'm you know, passionate about. And, and I was actually got home last night. I told you before we started recording 2 AM from, from a speaking opportunity in Dallas. And I was thinking about how how many times because some tech things went wrong at the event and I had to power through that. And I'm like, how many tech things have actually gone wrong? And how many times in the 14 plus years of being a professional speaker, I've been called upon because someone didn't show up Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something happened. And they're like, Oh, can you do this? Jennifer? Like, you know, there was a conference in Australia. I'd already delivered the opening journal session and a workshop. And the conference organizer started texting me after I did my workshop, like that he wanted to just, connect with me and see me. And I'm like, Oh, I'm really tired. I'd like to go back to my room. But I found him and he's like, um, our keynote, I think the person had COVID. Maybe he didn't say why he said she, unfortunately last minute is not able to be here. Our closing keynote. And I thought it'd be great. Oh no. If you were, because you did so well, you know, you did a great, you did so well with your opening session and your workshop and we've got a great, that if you kind of came and summed up the whole conference and, and really, and I was like, I can do this, you know, and and so all of those opportunities where I went back to the room, I had a couple hours. And so I'm like, okay, so I'm going to try to create a slide deck. And then I was like, no, I'm just going to get up there and talk because this, and and I did. And I think, you know, it went well, but things like that happen and it doesn't necessarily phase me. But if you asked me whether you gave me months to prepare or seconds to prepare to get up on any of those same stages and sing, which I think I am a good singer. I think I am a good singer. No one knows because I cannot do that. <laughs> Interesting. I would what do not you think like is, nothing would come about? out. I, I think some of it's the confidence that I don't, I don't know. We should schedule a session for something. <laughs> <But>. Singing is, <laughs> well, you're not alone there. I feel the same way, actually. At this point, I could get up in front of 10,000 people and talk no problem. But if they, if you asked me to sing, that would set my stomach a flutter. And part of it is that there is a psychological, emotional link between singing and our 
emotional space. Oh um, no. <laughs> and so I really do need therapy. <laughs> well, just that I mean, that's why I think, you know, people sing in church settings, right? There's a connection that people often feel when they're singing to their emotional core center or to their whatever words work for you, higher self, whatever. And that can be very vulnerable and forgetting, like, it doesn't even matter if you're a good singer or not a good singer, just the idea of using your voice in that way can be, can be really hard. So you're not a yes. list. <laughs> where, were, where were you in the beginning when I tried to audition for several things and simply could not, <laughs> but it does help me to have empathy for people who say that they you know, are terrified of public speaking because I, I get it. You know, for me, it comes easy because I do see it as a conversation. I said, it comes easy. I mean, I have to work on the craft, but I do see it as a conversation and I'm talking about topics I'm passionate about, but I get it. And so I understand. I find that there's some people who feel great with 10,000 people, but if you ask them to speak to 10 people, that would be much harder for them. And sometimes those larger rooms are more anonymous. And so you can kind of just be like, you're a wash. That's right. I'm talking to the lights. I'm talking to the wall of lights. I can't see your faces. Um, well, what is one thing that you would leave us with as we are, as we are all speakers, public speakers in some way, as I said, you're either talking to people in a boardroom or at a PTA meeting or in, on a theater stage, asking people to give you money, or you're trying to convince your kids or your partner to do something. So what is, what is one tip you'd like to leave us with as to how we can all step into the power that that role holds? Mm. Well, it's a funny tip because it sounds very boring, but I think it's really helpful. And once again, I'll talk a little bit about structure. And the tip is this. I often see people say, rehearse, 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 practice, 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 practice. And I think that rehearsal and practice are really important. 20 years as a theater director, that was my job. But the key was that we had a starting point and an ending point every single day. We weren't allowed to rehearse more than a certain amount of hours a day. And we weren't paid to rehearse more than a certain, of hour, a certain number of weeks. And that structure actually gave us really good guardrails for how much work to do and when to stop working on something. And sometimes I think when people are just starting out or they're refreshing their speaking, they think that the, what they should do is like all day, every day, be working on the speech, brushing your teeth in the car, walking down the street. And sometimes, and, and generally what I say to people is you've got to create structure for yourself, something like an amount of time. I'm going to rehearse this for the next hour and then that's it. Or I'm going to rehearse this five times and then that's it. This is especially helpful for video stuff because when you can re-record, people then get obsessive, right? And they'll re-record it a thousand times when usually like your first or second take are actually the best. So give yourself permission to work on something and then go do something else. And often the subconscious mind just needs time to process. And so go do something else you like, read a book, take a walk, bake a brownie, like eat some food. I don't know. Do watch Netflix. It really doesn't matter what you're doing. Just do something else with your brain and let your creative subconscious mind work on it a little bit. And generally speaking, the next day it's better and you haven't run yourself into the ground. And you're also not bored of your own speech. <laughs> That's I a plus. That. That, is a, 
That is a fantastic tip. Well, how can people connect with you, learn more about your work? And then you also have a free resource available that I'm excited about and definitely going to download. How can people get that? So tell us Great. all the things. So um, my website is adrianabearcreative.com. And that is where you can find out all about me. You can download my freebie. You can find my um, coaching and courses information. My freebie is called Beyond Once Upon a Time, 15 Ways to Start Your Speeches and Brainstorm Ideas That Won't Bore Your Audience. So you can get that on my website. It's also on my LinkedIn and pretty much everywhere. LinkedIn, Instagram, I'm Adriana Bear. So just one word, my name, and that's where you can find me. I also have a podcast too. It's called From Your Center. That's the one that I co-host with the nurse practitioner. And we're looking at both the science and the art side of moving from who you are to grow in your business and in your life. Fantastic. Well, I love that. And I'm definitely, yeah. and I, I love 15 tips to not bore my audience <laughs> and start my speeches. So I'm going to download you could, that for I sure. bet you could add some to those. So <laughs> We all could. Well, I'm going to certainly link up to all those in the show notes. And I love talking with you today. Um, you too, Jennifer. Thank you. And I think you have a lot to offer to the speakers out there and the wannabe speakers with all of your background and what you bring to the table. So thanks for sharing with us. Thank you so much. It's time for you to get noticed, create change and grow your influence. Don't waste any time. Subscribe to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review.